0: Good morning. I want to apologize if you're a regular viewer of our live stream uh, on Sabbath. Uh, We don't know what happened, but uh, there was some sort of error with our YouTube channel and we didn't uh, get the live stream. And then uh, the app and pathway that I used to record, I don't think I activated it quite correct either. So I didn't get even the sermon recorded live. So Happy to, uh, uh, to re-record it, so I'm not going to pretend that, um, <clears throat> uh, that this is uh, Sabbath morning, uh, June uh, the 5th, but uh, I just wanted to uh, make sure that we got this sermon up. Um, if, you, if you're viewing right now, I want to thank you, and thank you for your patience. I chose for our scripture reading for this Uh, Message in Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug and cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge, it shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall, it shall be trampled down. So the scripture reading describes a pretty serious dilemma. He's a God who has done everything for his children, but just doesn't see any results in them. The scripture reading said that he, he dug, he planted, he built a watchtower, he protected it in other words, he hewed out a wine vat in it for what it was supposed to produce. He expected it to yield grapes but it didn't yield the grapes it was supposed to. It yielded wild grapes, not ones that he is looking for. And he said, what more is there for me to do that I have not done in it? What, what, am I, what else am I supposed to do? And then very important, he says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed. Righteousness, but heard a cry. So it's a simple illustration. A vineyard planted with love for the beloved children, and it's all made complicated, not by what, but by who. It's by those children. The simple illustration is is that the children just don't exhibit the love that he had for them. So I ask, when you list things to be thankful for, have you ever listed dense people? I mean, the world is full of dense people, not us, of course, but certainly dense people. Have you ever listed them to be thankful for? Have you ever listed uh, people who just don't get it as something in your life to be thankful for? I've learned to, especially in our study, uh, because I've learned to at least uh, in, in all the studying of God's biblical children, but especially in these 12 men that we've been studying lately. You have to remember uh, that we're going along in the Gospel of John and from chapter 13 all the way till now, and it'll be this way all the way up uh, to uh, his arrest and his crucifixion, Jesus has uh, transitioned from his public ministry to ministry just to his disciples. These chapters are all take place in the upper room the, the night before his crucifixion, and it, the, his only audience is these disciples. So last week, Jesus taught these disciples would be marked by one thing. We're told that they're marked by love. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So love for each other has he has loved them. Limitless, unbound, never-ending, sacrificial love. And it's love that is lived out and proved how. It's lived out because it's promised as an incarnation. Jesus has told them, I will be in you just as the Father is in me and I am in you. And how was all that to be accomplished? Well, his promise was that it would happen by the Holy Spirit. He said, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate or helper, if you will, to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. So it's the Holy Spirit. His very presence would now live in them. You know him, he says, because he abides in you. So what I notice is from chapter 14, verse 8, uh, all the way on, nothing is said by the disciples. You get to the end of chapter 14, and they actually leave the upper room, and they begin to head for Gethsemane. And he continues talking because there is nothing else. They're, from the disciples, there's no reply. There's no questions. There's no mumbling. Nothing. Why? Because he told them that what will mark them as disciples is that if they have love for each other. And I think that has them stumped. It has them dumbfounded. Because in a few places, I get the feeling that the disciples really can't stand each other. I mean, even up to this moment, they are arguing about who is to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They're fighting, they're rivals. The upper room was uh, supposedly prepared by the two guys that are fighting over it the most Peter and John. So just think about it now is that three and a half years of Jesus' presence, three and a half years of walking and talking with him still has not penetrated the disciples on a heart level. They still don't love each other as Jesus has loved them. So Jesus' physical presence with them has only taken them so far. We sometimes would like to, to boast, if I, hey, if I had walked with him for three and a half years, it would be different with me. I'd be ready. I'd, I, there's no way I'm going to abandon him. There's no way that I would be fighting with each other. That love that I've witnessed and that I've seen, and the answer to that is no. You can only penetrate at a particular level. He's looking for a new level of intimacy with them, they're arguing about who could be the greatest. They're arguing about, uh, about as to um, um, who will be better, who is the leader, who has the most, who came first, all of these things. And Jesus just continues to teach because they don't get it. They, they are stumped by this idea that they are to love each other as Jesus has loved them. And I know that they're stumped because John 15, in essence, is a repeat of John 14. It teaches the same thing. It has the same theme. In verses 1 to 10, he tells a story of how the relationship will work, this new relationship that he's talking about, this, this abiding inner relationship of Jesus actually abiding in them. Verses 1 to 10 is an illustration on how that'll happen. Verse 12, he'll repeat the commandment to love each other and even tell them how, because in verse 26, he will bring up the Holy Spirit again. He will bring up the advocate and the helper to remind them of that. So are we taught any more in chapter 15? Well, yes, because of this story at the beginning. He wanted to make it simpler for them. He wanted to give them an illustration that they would know. And it could be as simple as this. It may sound complicated, but it could be as simple as this. So this illustration is is the one that we call uh, the vine and the branches. So John 15 verse one, it begins this way. I am the true vine and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So there are no parables in the Gospel of John. Just these illustrations, illustrations like the Good Shepherd in chapter 10. They're not technically parables, they're illustrations to uh, describe the simplicity to, or to make uh, something as complex as the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, uh, as God's presence being him in us in the world. It's, it's designed to, uh, uh, to, to get us around that complexity, to, 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 to get our minds around that. It's a simple teaching, Israel to a vine, comparing Israel or God's children to a vine. It's also found in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, as well as our scripture reading this morning. The vine, Jesus said he's the vine. The way, the truth, and the life. No one has life except through whom? Through him. The vine dresser is the father. The vine is maintained by him and the vine owes everything to him. The father is the one who cares for the entire vineyard and cares for the health of the vine. Jesus says this back in uh, chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. I've received this command from the Father. The branches and the fruit? Well, there are two ways to look at them. Most of us have identified ourselves as branches, and then the fruit are the fruits of our relationship with Jesus. Uh, uh, we'll look at fruits on both levels, but one of the levels is the fruit of our relationship with Jesus. That is, uh, what, what has he done for us? Uh, so what are we like? What fruits do we bear? Plus the fruits that we get from ministry and from outreach and, and winning, if you will, uh, uh, souls of uh, fruits to him, if you will. So uh, us being the branches, because the disciples were, and we are all disciples too, and the fruit being all the fruits of our collective relationship with Jesus. And it's been interpreted that way for centuries. And it's a good teaching. But we often miss the original setting for this teaching. We often miss the original audience and who he was speaking to. Who was it that he was speaking to? Notice back in verse 3, he says, you have already been cleansed. In verse 5, he says, you are the branches. We forget that John is saying, yes, Jesus is the vine, but the branches are those guys, those original disciples, the 11 that are there that are hearing this. The fruit on those branches then would be everyone who's come to the faith or come to Jesus by the ministry of those disciples. So another way to look at it is that those disciples are the branches. The fruit is everyone who has come to him. That means we're that very fruit. See, we are reminded that the Gospel of John was written for the second generation. It's written for the people that come to Jesus by faith, based on his word. And we never would have gotten the word had it not been for those 11 guys. So we're that fruit. See, we're all connected to the vine by the words and the actions of those disciples, 11 guys, and and in just uh, 20 or 25 or so years, scripture reports that the world observed the ministry of these 11 guys, and in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, it says that they have turned the world upside down. They were faithful, those 11 guys, in spreading the word. And everyone now, all of us, All of us have come to Jesus in some way connected to that ministry and that word. So all who have come to faith are summed up in the fruit that is connected to the vine by the branches, by the disciples' word. So the vine with his branches and the fruit is an analogy of the entire church. This 2,000 year history from back then all the way to today. It could be interpreted both ways but this is a beautiful teaching. It's simple. It's simple. He tells us then if we are connected and if we are that fruit, then he just, then he's able to tell us to love as he loved. That's a tall order for fallen humanity because we don't love that way anymore. We don't wake up and love each other the way Jesus has loved us. It's not possible for fallen humanity, which is why he says we need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs to live in us. So he connects us to the vine. The life flows through the vine and then it flows through the branch. And if the life is in the branch, then it will bear fruit. The Holy Spirit then is that life-giving force. The life-giving force that flows through the vine to be able to go to the branches so that the branches can bear living fruit. What the branch needs to do is to remain connected to the vine. I said we'd look at the fruits on two levels. There are personal fruits. When we are baptized by the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit is living in us because we are connected to the vine, if you will, and we're receiving life, then there are fruits that will be given to us. Galatians 5, and 23 list those fruits, the fruit of the Spirit, and the very first one is love. And because of love, because of love for God and, and his love for us, actually first, his love for us, our love for him, and then our love from each other, then the other fruits arise uh, f- uh, from that, joy and peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, Paul adds, there is no law. There isn't any law written that go against these things, if you will. Ellen White in her book, The Desire of Ages, page 676 says this, the life of the vine will be manifest in fragrant fruit on the branches. He that abideth in me, said Jesus, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. When we live by faith on the Son of God, the, the fruits of the Spirit will be seen in our lives. Not one will be missing. That calls us to task because I've heard many members, and I've sometimes said, uh, uh, even, even myself, is that, you know, patience just isn't my fruit. Patience just isn't my gift. Well, now I'm confusing spiritual gifts with spiritual fruits. Spiritual gifts, not everybody has every gift. Everybody has at least one of the gifts but not everyone has all of them. Fruit, on the other hand, all of the fruits are to be exhibited by those who claim to believe. We can't say that love, joy, or peace, or patience, or kindness, or generosity, or faithfulness, or gentleness, or self-control, we can't pick one of those out and say, I, that just isn't my fruit, that just isn't my thing. She said that all of them will be seen in our lives, not one will be missing. So a dichotomy, a contrast has begun to set up then, if you will, between his, his children, between his church and what truly marks the followers of Jesus within his body, within the body of Christ. Because for centuries, the argument has been, what truly is it that marks a disciple? And we set up an argument that I don't think really needs to be an argument because we never really understood. We don't understand the simplicity of this teaching. If we remain in the vine, if we abide, by the way, the word abide simply means to remain. If we remain in the vine, we will exhibit these fruits. But we have set up a dichotomy as to what marks a disciple because he said this uh, back in 14. He said, if you love me, you'll what? You'll keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So immediately the church began to seize on this and say, no, what marks a disciple is if he keeps his commandments. And all of a sudden now, obedience and love seem to be uh, in conflict with each other. And it was never meant to be. It was never meant to be because keeping commandments and love were never supposed to be separated out of the context of the disciple being in the vine, if you will, receiving all life and his life-giving force, and receiving what what can be uh, known as the fruit of that relationship. And that relationship is marked by those fruits, which is topped, if you will, by love. It says. So there's a context to both of these verses right here. To, verse, to uh, chapter fourteen, fifteen. if you love me, you keep my commandments. And in chapter 15, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. In verse 21 of chapter 14, it says, they who have kept my commandments, or they who have my commandments, and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. And in chapter 15, in verse 12, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. See, good commandment-keeping people have wreaked havoc with God's vineyard ever since the days of Isaiah. Our branches, the disciples, are struggling with that right now. They're struggling with uh, uh, keeping a commandment or obeying Jesus as to what he says and loving each other as he has loved them. Jesus tells them to love one another. So maybe, maybe Peter and John can set their differences aside. Maybe Peter and John might be able to come to an accord to where they could begin to love each other. But even if they are able to do that, every disciple then has to ask themselves, okay, so now how do I feel about Judas? It's easy for me to love my friends. But Judas set himself up and became an enemy. He betrayed Jesus and betrayed us. And remember, this is the context of this entire discourse that Jesus is giving his disciples. Judas is at this very moment bringing the soldiers to meet them in the garden. He is betraying them at this very moment. And before he left, Jesus did for him what he did for the other disciples he loved them. He loved Judas as he loved the other disciples. It doesn't matter what the disciples have done, what they recognize they have done. Jesus still shows that he loves them. See, just reading about God tempts us, if you will, of obedience to the page. And when we do, we will not get the righteousness that the vine is supposed to give. God comes to the, to the vineyard and he does not find the righteousness that he expected to find. He finds a people that may obey him on paper to a certain point, but he does not find them uh, living in his righteousness. He doesn't find them loving each other. He finds only bloodshed, Isaiah says. So this idea of, of a prescribed legal relationship with God. Is it enough? It's never been enough. Obedience to to a word on tablet or to a word on paper was never the design that God wanted to be because it simply isn't enough. We trace the synagogue system to sometime after the Babylonian captivity. The rabbis developed it to maintain a unity for people who were no longer bound by geography. Remember, uh, Babylon takes Israel captive, brings them to Babylon and takes them captive. And Jeremiah promised that after 70 years, the the rulers at the time, which would be the Medes and the Persians, they would begin to let Israel go. They would begin to set up uh, uh, a a freedom, a declaration of freedom so that they could go back. But history tells us that somewhere between 70 and 85% of all that went into captivity never came back. They begin to live outside the nations and the surrounding areas outside of Israel between what is now modern day Iraq and over at Israel. They begin what is called the diaspora. They are dispersed, if you will. So the synagogue system was designed to kind of allow these people to still maintain a Jewish unity even though their geography no longer brings them together. It's it's a beautifully attempted practice to bring some sort of semblance of daily walk, of temple worship. By the way, it's the closest thing we have from ancient times to modern church worship. Gathering weekly in a gathering like this. The synagogue system uh, did that. It brought them together uh, uh, apparently on Sabbath, at least every Sabbath. But I have to tell you, there is no command to the synagogue system in Scripture. You do not find God commanding uh, any uh, Israel at any time to build synagogues, to build churches, to gather in on Sabbath. There is absolutely no command to do so. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, the synagogue system has been around for about 400 years, uh, give or take, we're not 100% sure, but at least a couple of hundred years. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he doesn't provide any condemnation of it. He doesn't say, look, the Bible does not allow for us to gather in these synagogues on Sabbath. This isn't what God had in mind. He doesn't condemn it because it isn't found in Scripture. In fact, he makes it his own. Luke tells us in in chapter four, verse 16, it says, when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on Sabbath and stood up to read. Mark 3.1 relates another time where he enters the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So again, it's a beautiful idea. It may have saved Judaism. It might just have saved Judaism. It kept it bound long enough to be able to at least create a bond because Judaism is about to face a horrible future. The world has in store for for Judaism its destruction after 70 CE. And the history will show That there have been uh, at least three times, at least three times, where the world truly, truly tried to exterminate them from the face of the earth. So as I said, it came to incorporate scripture, uh, uh, to take temple and corporate worship and put it into a structure, So when you begin to look in in scripture, when you begin to look in the Bible, if you will, the Bible that they had, if there is no uh, prescription for synagogue worship, then they take theology that originally was designed for the temple and the priesthood, and they begin to apply it to the synagogue. They take it out of its context, and they put it in there. So as I said, there was a time where Mark says that he entered the synagogue and a man was there who had a withered hand. See, it's remarkable that the man with the withered hand is even there because the law states that he doesn't belong in a worshipful situation. Why? Because that withered hand is a blemish. It's a defect, if you will. It is a physical defect. And the law plainly states, Leviticus 21, 21, says, No descendant of Aaron the priest, by the way, Aaron the priest, the priesthood being the ones in charge of worship. I really believe that the synagogue system began to introduce the priesthood of all believers. So they, they were taking the theology of the priesthood and applying it to people. But it also, would, the law was being used to keep particular people out, to keep uh, people from, from mingling. Those who have blemishes versus those who don't. So no priest shall have a blemish. who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's offerings by fire. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the food of his God, of the most holy as well as of the holy, but he shall not come near the curtain or approach the altar because he has a blemish. He may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord. I sanctify them. Again, this commandment keeping. They were keeping these commandments. I contend that the man with the withered hand is is found in the synagogue shockingly, if you will. I don't believe he's been allowed even to enter before. And if he has been allowed to enter, he's been forced to sit in back because I I say that when Jesus uh, finds him, when Jesus finds out, he has to call him forward. He has to call him forward. So, he wouldn't even be allowed to be in the synagogue. But the righteous people, the self-righteous people, the the commandment-keeping people, if you will, the ones who are trying to keep Leviticus 21, 21, they decide that they will overlook that and they will bring him in uh, today, this Sabbath, for a particular purpose. I believe because they knew that Jesus was going to be there. He entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And then in verse four, it's, he said to them, "Is it lawful to do good or to harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill?" But they were silent. They were silent. So now they ask, as to what does the commandment say about the Sabbath? You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. Healing, they looked upon as a particular work. Healing is a work that could wait. All work can wait until after sundown. Jesus saying, but is it right to do good? If the work is to do good, or if the work is to do harm, is it right to save life or to kill? But it says they were silent, and they were silent for a reason. They knew what he was saying. They knew that it was right to do good on the Sabbath. They knew that it was right to save a life on the Sabbath. They never, ever would allow a commandment to allow somebody to sin a greater sin, if you will, than a particular work. Then we're told in verse five, it says, and he looks around them with anger. He was grieved at the hardness of their heart. You look anywhere in Scripture, this is the only time that Jesus is ever attributed as being angry. That word, anger, is never applied to Jesus in all the Scriptures. Sometimes I ask people, I ask, was there a time in Scripture when Jesus was ever angry? And the answer that I get back is, is that yes, when he overturned the money changers at the table, he was angry. Yes, I agree. He appears angry and I believe he was angry, but this is the only time that a gospel writer ever says that Jesus was angry. And why is he angry? At the hardness of their hearts they have never loved the man enough to welcome him in to the sanctuary because the law says he can't come close to God with a, uh, with a defect, if you will, this withered up hand, if you will. He, they don't have any love for him to welcome him in except when they want to use him as a theological prop. They're using him to get Jesus to make a theological mistake so that they can condemn him. And it made Jesus angry. You guys will keep the the strictest of commandments and you will overlook completely, completely the love that the commandment was supposed to teach us. You've never loved this man enough to bring him in. You've used the letter of the law. You've used the Bible itself to convince him that not only does God not like him because if God really liked him, he wouldn't be all withered up. And today, he's being used as a prop to catch Jesus and it makes him angry. So Jesus, the word become flesh. The commandment become flesh. The commandment of love lovingly tells the man to stretch out his hand and he stretches it out, and he restores it. So the lesson for us is is that commandment-keeping people may not be true followers of Jesus. It may not be a branch that will bear fruit. If it doesn't bear the fruit of love, then obedience to the letter, if you will, if it doesn't bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, so forth and so on, then it's removed. And it's used for fuel. Right behavior never outside a true abiding love. And we don't have to look far to find it, do we? It's the message to the Pharisees. It's the message to Laodicea. Laodicea has locked love outside the door, has locked love on, on, uh, in the heart outside the door, uh, and, and they've done it because they believe that they are a good commandment-keeping people. We are rich and have need of nothing. We are marked, if you will, that we have the testimony of Jesus and keep the commandments of God. And we've locked the love that those commandments were supposed to point us to, locked him outside the door. That's the message to Laodicea. To as long as I'm obedient, I'm right with God. Doesn't matter that I'm not loving. I don't need Jesus for what he has come to give me. To love me as the Father has loved him and to live in me so that I may eventually love my neighbor as myself. This is why the illustration is written the way it is. It isn't supposed to be uh, work. Abide is not work. Abide simply says to remain, just remain. If you're, if you're seated uh, here and there comes a, uh, a, an emergency or something and, and it's best for us all to stay put, then, then you could simply say abide, just abide. It means just remain. If you're seated and I say abide, just remain. If you have been, uh, if Jesus has loved you, if he has loved us, then anything that we're supposed to be doing is to be bearing fruit. If we're simply just to abide. It isn't work. It isn't obedience to the word, mere obedience to the word. The question we're asked is, how hard does an apple tree work to bear apples? Not at all. If it's taken care of, if it it has life flowing through it, then it will bear apples. Work would be to tell an apple tree to bear oranges. There's a great line from Desire of Ages, again, uh, just one page after, our last one, page 677. Herein is my Father glorified, said Jesus, that you bear much fruit. God desires to manifest through you the holiness, the benevolence, the compassion of his own character. Yet the Savior does not bid the disciples to labor to bear fruit. He doesn't tell you to work to bear fruit, he tells them to abide in him. Either personal fruits or fruits won to the kingdom. They're not mere works when we love. They're not mere obedience when we love. It opens the possibility of what freedom really is in love. It's love bound by nothing. And that includes bound by a legal relationship, if you will. Israel chose this legal relationship to be bound. And they foolishly, they foolishly tell the one who they ask to intercede, the one who doesn't have the legal relationship with him. Moses has no legal relationship with him because Moses is willing to come up the mountain. Moses is willing to see him face to face, to walk with him and to talk with him. He comes back with words written on paper and Israel says, whatever he says, we will do. They bound themselves to this legal relationship of obedience to the law. Jesus is trying to tell them, love is bound by nothing. He says this, he says, no one has greater love than this, to lay down life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. All the love that the Father has given me, he said, I've given you. Everything that I've heard from the Father, everything that I have from the Father, I have given you. Israel choose to live with and by a God on paper, on tablet bound to a code, one that binds you that if you have to choose between the letter of the law and loving your neighbor as yourself, you're bound to the letter because there's nothing else to go on. If I've backed God away from me, uh, that he wants to be present with me, and I say, no, I'd rather just read about you, then I have nothing else to go on. I am required by the letter of the law, to only keep the commandment and not appear to have the commandment written upon my heart and to have life and compassion and mercy. See, those are the people, the self-righteous people that Jesus has been running into. You cannot be who you claim to be. You can't be the presence of God because this does not say that you can. Can you imagine? Can you imagine holding up God's very word and telling God, your word tells me that you can't be God. They're bound by whatever the paper, the the papyrus, the tablet tells them. So he reminds them, you didn't choose me, Jesus said. I chose you and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that the father will give you whatever you ask in him, ask him in my name. I'm giving you these commands so that you may love one another. See, there's no boasting in who we are. We didn't choose him. We didn't wake up one day and say, I will choose him. He says, you didn't choose me. I know for a fact that I didn't choose him. Jesus reminds me every day that when he found me, I was running as fast as I could in the opposite direction. That's my nature. But when he chooses me, then we bear fruit when he chooses us. See, Israel in Isaiah 5 is looking to live life with God from instructions on tablet and paper and every time an opportunity arises to live out the love of God and what he has for them, he finds only bloodshed. He finds only conflict. This is as far as we go as a commandment-keeping people, as a biblical people. That's as far as you can go. The law told Jesus He was supposed to stone Mary that day. It was clear. But the law become flesh, the word become flesh, the love of God abiding in him said no. I'll keep the law by showing her mercy. Because if that's what you've done is if you have loved, then you have fulfilled the law, you've kept it. Him in us, abiding in him, even though we didn't choose him. We're told this in Steps to Christ, page 70. A life in Christ is a life of restfulness. There may be no ecstasy of feeling, but there should be an abiding, peaceful trust. Your hope is not in yourself, it is in Christ. Your weakness is united to his strength, your ignorance to his wisdom, your frailty to his enduring might. So you're not to look to yourself, not to let the mind dwell upon self, but to look to Christ. I love this for two reasons. One is notice that all we bring to the table is weakness, ignorance, and frailty. We got nothing. We we just bring weakness, ignorance, and frailty. That's all we have to bring to the table. But in him, we get strength and wisdom and enduring might. You didn't choose me. He says, you did not choose me. The other reason I like it is, says, there is no ecstasy of feeling. We may not feel like it. Your fruitfulness, my fruitfulness, is not predicated on whether or not we feel like it. There might be days of ecstasy. There might be days where we feel that we really have it together. And there'd be days when there won't be. But he remains the same. The vine remains the same and simply ask us to remain in him, even if you don't feel like it. We are told in recovery that the the best time for you to come to your meeting is when you feel like it. And the next best time to come to your meeting is when you don't feel like it. Jesus is saying that to us. The best time to remain in me is when you don't feel fruitful and the best time to remain in me is when you do feel fruitful. Remember, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you to go and to bear fruit. We didn't choose him. But you know, sometimes we act with authority at times like we did like we were somehow the only righteous humans to act in history. That our Bible study, that our uh, Bible students, that being remnant is, is somehow placed us in, in, in a place of authority, if you will. That our obedience simply to the, to the word on the page is something that, that all of a sudden makes us authoritative, puts us on a different level. And when we look at the 2,000 year history of our church, we've got nothing to boast about. Our church is still segregated along the lines of separate but equal, to the point to where most white churches aren't even safe places, or spaces if you will, for members of color. We have a history of using an us and them theology when it came to the new covenant and not only stood by and watched, but also sometimes actively participated in the persecution or near extinction of Jews from the planet. We're still a church that treats women as second class members. In a lot of cases, a toxic patriarchy Uh, infiltrates us, if you will. All because of a legal relationship, all because some words are either missing or not there, or there are words there that we ignore in scripture itself. All the way up to today, I've read the, the latest uh, version of the church manual. And, and even though the church manual still has a, a chapter on church discipline, we've still never, ever been told we can discipline a member for not being loving. We'll discipline people for all kinds of violations of the letter of the law but we won't discipline a member for not being loving. We won't discipline a member for being mean. We don't have anything to boast about. You didn't choose me, he said. I am always have that in my head. You didn't choose me, Greg, but I chose you. We didn't choose him, but he chose us. I'll just leave you with one more quote from Steps to Christ. Page 69, this time, many have an idea they must do some part of the work alone. They've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, but now they seek by their own efforts to live aright. But every such effort must fail. We don't try to live aright prescribed in our Bibles. We try to live aright by living in the love of Christ, to remember that he chose us to love us. And if we're able to love, if we're able to love, not only have we kept every commandment, we've actually fulfilled it. Our own efforts to live aright can only be uh, prescribed, if you will, to be read about. Every one of those efforts must fail. Every effort for self uh, to live aright must fail. Love comes from one place. It only comes from the vine. And he says today, just remain in it. Just remain in it. And by the way, as a church, it's what we're here to do is to encourage people to continue to remain because there are plenty of days when there's no ecstasy associated with it. But if we encourage each other to remain, then we get what he tells us today. So thank you for hanging in. Thank you for giving us a view. And um, just ask that uh, today and every day that you completely do not miss the grace of God in your life. I love and miss you all. Thank you.